My name is Mark Beatty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood and I'm going to highlight some of the papers from the April edition. So the first paper, which is Editor's Choice this month, relates to hypnotherapy and irritable bowel syndrome. So this is very interesting to me as a paediatrician, but also to me as a paediatric gastroenterologist. So functional abdominal pain and irritable bowel syndrome are common in children. Well, we all know that common cause of outpatient consultations, frequently seen by paediatricians and often very difficult to manage. It's well known that the pathophysiology can be complex, it can be diverse, and there are many different potential contributing factors. And it's even more important to remember that functional symptomatology can have a massive impact on quality of life. And in a child that can involve interaction at school, attendance at school, and family dynamics. So we're always looking out for new treatments and we're always looking out for treatments that are non-invasive, not particularly expensive and effective. So in this issue, Rutten and colleagues report a systematic review of the evidence base for gut-directed hypnotherapy in such children, looking at the impact on pain, quality of life and school attendance. There are only a limited amount of studies in the literature and so only a limited amount of studies to include in this systematic review. The findings are nevertheless positive and suggest that hypnotherapy can impact on this group of children. In an accompanying editorial, Peter Warwell, who is an adult physician with an interest in hypnotherapy, talks about his experience and extrapolating that to the paediatric population suggests that hypnotherapy should be considered as a treatment option in children with irritable bowel syndrome in whom there's a functional component. And I think this is important. I think the papers are good and useful to read. They do suggest that in this rather difficult to treat group, we have a new potential therapeutic option. In this second paper, I'd like to talk about the capillary refill time. So this is basic clinical methodology. The capillary refill time is an assessment tool well known to us all and routinely used in clinical care, particularly in the assessment of circulatory status in the acute setting. Prolonged refill time is suggestive of poor peripheral perfusion but can be affected by many other factors and these include environment, lighting, temperature and technique. The recommended sites for the assessment of the capillary refill time are the fingertip and the sternum. And there is standardisation of the technique, which is to press firmly for five seconds and then measure the time taken for the skin to return to a normal colour, with normal being less than two seconds. In this issue, Crook and Taylor investigate the agreement between the fingertip and sternum in 92 children who are well. So effectively looking at capillary refill time in a normal population. And the results are of considerable interest. So what they've found is that fingertip refill time mean is 1.08 seconds with a range of 0.05 to 2.78 seconds. And sternum refill time has a mean of 1.5 seconds with a range of 0.85 to 2.38 seconds. So if you assess the 
capillary refill time at the fingertip, then it is shorter than it is if you assess it at the sternum in the same patient. So that is an important practical clinical point. Their second finding, which is of equal if not more interest, is that there isn't a consistency in an individual patient between measurements at those two different sites. And this has a very important clinical practical implication. And that is that in an individual case, if you're assessing capillary refill time, you need in that case, in that setting, to stick to either sternum or fingertip as your measurement site. So the important practical implication highlighted by the authors is that the two measurements can't therefore be used interchangeably in the same patient. So this is important in our clinical practice. The third paper that I've chosen to highlight relates to the resting heart rate. It's a large study from Hong Kong that includes 14,842 children across 18 districts. So resting heart rate is increasingly recognised as a prognostic marker for long-term cardiovascular disease, with elevated heart rate being a predictor of longer-term adverse health outcomes. Now there is data in adults but less in children. And so what this study has done is looked at heart rate, blood pressure, anthropometric data and exercise frequency across this group of children. In some respects, unsurprisingly, high resting heart rate was associated with elevated blood pressure and inactivity, controlled for age and sex, with resting heart rate more closely linked with fatness than body size, with a positive independent association with weight circumference, at least in boys. So it's an interesting data set. It's a data set that you might make the presumption from that if you increase exercise and lower heart rate, you will improve long-term health outcomes. So this study is reporting cross-sectional data, and to look at this properly and see if you can impact on health outcomes, impact on health outcomes long-term would require a longitudinal approach. Nevertheless, it is a large data set and the findings are of interest. The fourth paper relates to growing up before growing out. It's an interesting whole population study of height, weight and obesity from northeast Scotland, looking at almost 200,000 children born between 1970 and 2006. So what this study shows is that height standard deviation score rose for those born between 1970 and 2000 but has been static since. Obesity fell initially during that phase of increased height but then rose between 1976 and 1998, although has stabilised subsequently. In summary, what the paper shows, and it's an impressive data set to go through, is that we saw an increase in height, which preceded the increase in weight, and therefore for a period obesity levels fell, but then that was followed by an increase in obesity, which has since stabilised. What's interesting is 
However, that despite the fact we're taller than we were 25 years ago, obesity rates are very significantly higher. So five to six-year-olds now are two to three centimetres taller than they were in the 70s, but obesity rates in 1976 were 1.3% and they're 5.7% now. So just an interesting observation that we got taller then fatter and it's now stabilised. We are taller than we were 25 years ago but we're still significantly more obese. The fifth paper relates to underweight. So children are often admitted to hospital with severe and life-threatening underweight. So a typical example would be anorexia nervosa but this Serious, life-threatening underweight also applies to other chronic disorders. And so what Hudson and colleagues have done, reported in this issue, is to investigate the knowledge base of middle-grade trainees on the presenting features recognition and management of severe underweight. It is appropriate to choose the middle-grade trainees for a study of this type because they're usually the first doctor that will see a patient on acute presentation to hospital. So this was in England and Wales and what the authors highlighted is significant knowledge gaps in the most appropriate measure of underweight, the cardiovascular complications of underweight, the diagnosis of refeeding syndrome and the monitoring of treatment once it's started. This is important. It's important because severe underweight is life-threatening and treatment strategies need to be appropriate. This knowledge gap does need to be addressed. The authors cite references which help with this and one in particular is the Junior Marzipan Project which was initiated by the Royal College of Psychiatrists to better manage children with anorexia nervosa who are severely underweight and admitted to hospital. The other strategy to improve this knowledge gap would be to include this in the curricula for acute resuscitation courses. Because the acute resuscitation course will teach you about life-threatening situations such as cardiac arrest and anaphylaxis, and this life-threatening situation should be added to the portfolio in such a course which would enable trainees to be properly taught about the recognition and management of such patients. So finally, I'd like to highlight some of the content in Education and Practice this month. There's an excellent collection of articles in the How to Use series. There is also clear instructions for authors for any listeners who would like to consider contributing. We have relaunched the guidelines series with a clear and focused summary of the NICE guidance on the management of neutropenic sepsis in cancer patients. And I would just highlight to listeners the fact that if they feel there is a guidance that they could usefully summarise and comment on, they should approach the editor-in-chief, Ian Wacoyne, who I'm sure would be able to consider a commission. Many of the papers in education and practice now have questions to help with continuing professional development which we hope are helpful. We're also now looking for as a new initiative self-assessment questions to be submitted for a new section called epilogue. 
please refer to the instructions for authors and send in your questions. So I've summarised some of the articles from this month's edition and hope very much you enjoy reading those and the rest of the copy. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.